Father, we are lost without you, without you shining your light into our darkness, without you bringing your life into our deadness. We are lost, and our hearts cry out desperate for you, needing you, desiring you. May the service continue to be a response to both our need and to your call into the life that you offer through your son, Jesus. May it be so. In his name we pray together. Amen. Well, it's uh, good to be back with you after uh, a week away uh, with my family. We had the opportunity to go to what is called the happiest place on earth, and it uh, is very close to being just that. Um, uh, We were in Disneyland for a few days, and I remember as a child growing up uh, in the Southwest, always wanting to go to Disneyland, but never having the opportunity to do that. We didn't travel a whole lot as a family, and certainly not the many miles it would have taken us to get all the way uh, to Southern California. And so uh, going there with my own children has been an opportunity to relive, uh, I think, some of my uh, lost childhood dreams and uh, um, hurtling through Space Mountain. If uh, you're familiar with Space Mountain, it's a roller coaster in the dark. And, uh, you're going uh, unexpected turns and uh, ascents and descents, and it's, as I get older, it's uh, more nauseating as I do things like that, but uh, it certainly was a lot of fun. One of the new, uh, we'd been to the park once before about six years ago, and one of the changes or additions that they had made was uh, what's called Cars Land, and based off of the movie Cars, which is a celebration of the old Route 66, and uh, or a reminder and memory of it, an echo of what uh, uh, early post-World War II Americana was uh, like. And um, it was stunning to see the, um, the duplication, the replication of uh, Radiator Springs, the town that sets in the heart of that show and uh, that movie. And uh, at night, I, I couldn't wait uh, because at night they turned on the neon lights uh, in this little city, and it was really remarkable. And I stood there and folded my arms, and I just kind of sat back, and I said, wow, wow, this was more than I could have expected in any way, and I was blown away. They sure know how to do things pretty well down there, and we enjoyed our time. But it is good to be back with you. Our passage this morning really is um, even more than a simple wow at Disneyland, is an opportunity to step back and, and to marvel and to say wow at the reality of God and the person of Jesus Christ and We're invited today to think about the reality that, and the fact that Jesus is more, I think more than any of us realize, that Jesus really is more than what we expect. He is more than what we realize, and he has done more and provides more, and in his person, he is essentially more than what we realize. Jesus is more. He is a teacher. But he's more than that. Jesus is a friend, but he's so much more than that. You may think of Jesus as a defender of the weak and a pursuer of justice. You'd be right, but he's more than that. You see, if I relate only to Jesus as a teacher, 
that I can be tempted to obey him out of legalism, of simply creating a list and checking the boxes and uh, falling into um, a relationship of uh, dead legalism instead of a relationship of love. If I worship Jesus or follow him only as a teacher, I might seek to change certain behaviors and uh, activities that I do without letting my heart and my deepest self be touched and changed because of Jesus' work in me. If I relate to Jesus only as a teacher, I may try to parent my children by simply guiding them to do good things. Just behave. Instead of, as a parent, guiding them into their own personal relationship with the living Jesus. You see, Jesus is more than just a teacher. If I relate to him only as a friend... I may sense a a level of closeness, but the grandeur of his person may be lost on me. If I relate to Jesus only as a friend, the awe factor, the wow factor of relating to the eternal God can be diminished, limiting my view of his holiness. You see, Jesus is more than just a friend. If I relate to Jesus only as a champion of the weak and the oppressed... My understanding of the necessity of his cross to defeat sin and to do away with death can be limited. If I relate to him only as a champion of the weak, I may confuse my work for causes as always being equivalent to faithfulness to God. Now, those two things may not be mutually exclusive, but they're not necessarily the same. You see, until the part of Mark's gospel that we read in Mark chapter 9, you can turn there if you like, Jesus has been up to this point in the first eight chapters, he's been portrayed as a great teacher, as someone who comes into broken lives and heals and restores people. He is a wonder worker, demonstrating his own power by walking across the water and Casting out demons. This is the Jesus that has been introduced to the readers up through the first eight chapters of the Gospel of Mark. To the disciples that have been watching and listening and following eagerly. But there's something more that is now happening. There's something more to the person of Jesus that beginning in chapter 9 is being uncovered. And the curtain is being drawn back even more to reveal more of who he is. So that the disciples might stand back and say, wow. So that we might look at Jesus and say, unbelievable who this person is. He's just begun in chapter 8 to talk about the fact that he is Messiah and the Son of God. His destiny is one of suffering and one of death and one of resurrection from the dead. He's just begun to introduce these themes in Mark's gospel. And the disciples are now beginning to be a little flummoxed. What in the world is going to carry them with Christ through to his suffering and to his cross? Well, God leads them up onto this mountain and they are going to see more of who Jesus is And in this moment, will be challenged even more to commit themselves to his very person. You see, Jesus, as they walk through the city of Caesarea Philippi, he he asked them the question, who do people say that I am? And some of the responses are, well, you're Elijah, come back to life. Or you're John the Baptist, resuscitated. Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter's response is, you are the Christ. 
but he's only beginning now to understand the implications of that profession that Jesus is the Christ. So what does that mean? Is he a teacher? Yes. Is Jesus a wonder worker? Of course. Is Jesus a friend? As he says to the disciples in John's gospel that I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know the will of his master, but now I call you friends. Yes, he's a friend. Is he the defender of the weak? Yes. But in the transfiguration, we see that he is much more. Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 2, we hear these words. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up on a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Could you imagine? Verse 7, then a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, Why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. You see, in this passage, we get a glimpse of the glory of Jesus. Now, this is more than a mental vision to teach a point, such as you see in Acts chapter 10, where Peter gets that vision of the sheep being let down and God is pronouncing all foods clean and, and other people uh, not untouchable. And then he gets his calling to go to Cornelius, the non-Jewish person. It's more than just a, a mental vision like this. There's a, a tangible event because Peter himself in, in his own writing in Second Peter chapter 1 would write these words reflecting on it. He says, we did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. You see, Peter recounts this as a factual event. More than just a, a mental vision or some teaching opportunity or a dream this was something that materialized right before their very eyes. And there's three aspects of this passage that I want us to think about. And I think God guides us to here this morning. Are you ready? Number one is that Jesus is not of this 
world. Jesus is not of this world. Jesus is more than a mere human teacher. As in John chapter 8, he describes himself as being from above and we being from below, that he is not of this world. The word that uh, describes him as being transfigured is an interesting one. It's only used in verb form four times in the New Testament. But right before their very eyes, something changes in him. His appearance changes. The Bible describes his clothes being this dazzling, bright white. There is no cleaner on earth that could do to his clothing what was happening right before their very eyes. And it seems that just for a moment we are glimpsing the glory that Jesus had when he was with the Father before he laid it aside in order to take on flesh to come and live among us as described in Philippians chapter 2. We get just a glimpse of that in this encounter. In John chapter 1, we are reminded that, that the Word became flesh and came and made His dwelling, literally pitched His tent right here among men and women, His very own creation. Jesus is not of this world. In this account, we get a precursor, we get a little foretaste to the glory of what the resurrected Jesus would be. He would suffer and die. He's just beginning to lay that message out to the disciples, though they don't understand what that means. In their minds, they're still expecting a political savior, someone who would restore them and throw off the yoke of the Romans so that they might be free to worship and pursue life as they seem fit. And they can't understand how Jesus really is the Messiah promised of God. How in the world he could talk about suffering and dying. And what in the world, this head-scratcher idea of being resurrected from the dead. That was not a common event. These were not simple people. He would suffer and die. But he would be raised again, victorious. Jesus is not of this world. He is transfigured before them. Let's read it again, verse 2. After six days, Jesus took James and John and, uh, with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. So Jesus is not of this world. A second aspect that uh, we are to hear, I think, out of this passage is that Jesus is designed by God and is introduced to us as the final and the ultimate prophet because he stands with Moses and Elijah. In verse 4 it says, there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. Not only is Jesus transfigured right before their very eyes, but suddenly there before them stand Elijah with Moses. And you may at first blush kind of kick back and say, this sounds too weird to really have happened. It's kind of implausible for two long dead guys, even though they're Bible all-stars, it's a little unthinkable that they would actually materialize or somehow be present and appear right before them. Well, we uh, sometimes marvel at the possibilities of science fiction, don't we? 
Uh, I grew up watching a little bit of Star Trek, and uh, I, I remember watching in amazement at that transporter machine that could take, and they'd stand in this portal on the ship, and all of a sudden they would be standing full form on the planet below, right? Or when they got into trouble, they would open their, their uh, communicator, and what was the famous line? Beam me up, Scotty. And all of a sudden, they disappear. There they are on the ship. Wow. Wow. We watch something like that. We, we, we stand amazed because we begin to think, wow, that may really be possible in a few years. As advancements in science continue and, and all of these things, and we, we don't think that's it may be impossible at this moment, but it's not implausible in the future down the road. And so sometimes we come to the Bible and we see events like this and we, we put on a skeptical mind and we fold our arms and we say, ah, that's implausible. That's, that's sort of miraculous, uh, hokey talk. It's a way of sort of building up something that couldn't have, have happened. But why should we have difficulty, if you do, to accept that God Almighty could have an even greater ability than the greatest science fiction minds could dream up? Why could he not easily send Elijah and Moses to stand before and with Jesus there on the mountain? It's not far out. It's within the easy capacity of the living and almighty God. But why was it Moses and Elijah who are standing there with Jesus? Moses, uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 18, is referred to and is understood biblically as the prototype of the end times prophet. It is stated there in Deuteronomy 18 that from among them, one would come in the li- like Moses to lead them and that they should listen to him. Elijah, we know Elijah as the passionate follower and defender of God. We know Elijah in that great pyrotechnic display on Mount Carmel. We know Elijah as the one who uh, worked for God and uh, loved God passionately. We see in Malachi chapter 4, we see both Moses and Elijah in a description of the end of times. In verse 4 of Malachi chapter 4, it says, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel, See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. So you see, there is an anticipation that Elijah would come as a forerunner of the Messiah. Moses standing with Elijah is a picture that Jesus is the final and ultimate prophet of God. You see, prophet, don't, don't think first when you hear the word prophet as someone who tells the future. That certainly can be part of a prophet's role. But primarily a prophet is one who speaks on behalf of God. Not just a forth teller saying what will happen before it happens, but a, a, a foreteller, I mean, but a forth teller speaking forth the words of God. And in that sense, Jesus is the ultimate and final Prophet. And so as we picture, as the disciples picture, and as we see Jesus standing there with Moses and Elijah, these are the images that are to come. Jesus in Matthew chapter 17 in the parallel passage here describes John the Baptist as being the Elijah figure who is to come as a forerunner 
of the Messiah. Well, Peter can't help himself but to respond, right? I, I love Peter. I, uh, I love his reactions to things. And he, he tries hard. I think part of his reaction seems to be in some ways appropriate here. In some ways, he kind of totally misses the point. Um, he, uh, he says, uh, Peter, in verse 5, he says, Rabbi, teacher, it is good for us to be here. Is that the understatement of the, of the, <laughs> of the world? Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. I want you to picture in your mind's eye, walking up with Jesus. You've seen him heal. You've seen him teach. You've heard him teach. You've you've watched him minister. And now you with two other people walking alone with him up the mountain. And suddenly, he is transfigured before you. Part of the descriptions that his clothes shine bright white. And there, you can't believe it, but there's Moses and Elijah standing with Jesus. What would be your response? Probably fear. Some of you might be stunned to silence. Others of you may just have to talk because you don't know what to do with the nervous energy in you. That's kind of, I think, what Peter was like. He just had to do something, wanted to honor the occasion, to mark it somehow. I don't think he was trying to institutionalize what was happening. But just like in the Feast of Tabernacles, uh, there was a a desire to create a a structure of shade and dignified place for them to meet. But many commentators would say that this would also place all three, Elijah, Moses, and Jesus, on equal footing, on level footing, on uh, in the same category, in the same place. And that is where Peter misses the point. He misses the point. And there's some humor in Peter's failure to grasp the significance of the moment. Have you ever missed the significance of an opportunity that came up? Has something ever come across your path in life and then it was gone? And in reflecting back on it, you missed the opportunity. Back in 2000, when was the last time you ever saw a Blockbuster video store on the street? In the last six months? The last two years? I don't think there's a single one left out there. Did you know back in the year 2000, Blockbuster Video had the opportunity to buy Netflix video? They decided to pass on it. And if you know anything about Netflix, it's one of the largest video producers and distributors in the entire world. An opportunity that was there before them, they decided to pass because they thought it was a fad. Tom Brady, one of the greatest quarterbacks in uh, professional football history, has won three Super Bowls, twice named Super Bowl MVP. Did you know in the year that he was drafted, he was the 168th player chosen that year? There were a lot of reasons for that. There's no reason to think that he would uh, necessarily uh, become the player that he has become. But well-known names were drafted ahead of him. Names like Giovanni Carmazzi and Spurgeon Wynn. You remember those names drafted back then? I don't see any hands. I see one hand. I think you're lying. But uh, That's right. So many teams look back and regret the opportunity that was right there before them, yet they missed the opportunity. And Peter's a little like that. He's not knowing what to do. He's filled with fear. He's seeing this fantastic vision, getting a glimpse of the glory of Jesus. And he doesn't know what to do. Jesus, you see, is the ultimate anointed one. 
He is the final and ultimate prophet of God. Third and finally this morning is that Jesus, we are told and reminded, is God's son who is dwelling among us. Verse 7, a cloud then appeared and enveloped them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. So make no mistake. There was no confusion about who was God's son. It was not Moses. It was not Elijah. Because after the pronouncement comes, the only one standing with the disciples is who? Is who? Jesus. Jesus, you see, is God's son dwelling with us. There are a lot of correlations in the story with Deuteronomy chapter 24 and with Moses. Moses, who goes up on the mountain for six days, the cloud is covering and God speaks and the people then respond that we will listen and obey to all of the words of the Lord. You see, Jesus is not just the ultimate and final Old Testament or prophet in that sense. He is more than an Old Testament prophet. Jesus alone remains after this voice of the Heavenly Father pronounces, this is my son. Peter's response is inadequate because Moses and Elijah, as great as they are in the history of God's working, they are not on par with Jesus. Jesus alone is God's son. Jesus, the second person of the Godhead, Father, Son, Spirit, eternally existent. Beth read a passage for us out of Colossians that describes Jesus present and participating in the creation event. Jesus is God's Son making His dwelling with us. The disciples, wow, I mean, talk about minds blown. They're beginning to have their world and their scope, understanding of God's scope of His work expanded and it's demonstrated through the person of Jesus. It's to help them anticipate the resurrection of Christ. It is to help fuel their following of Jesus all the way to his cross. Jesus is beginning to describe his own suffering and his death. But that, of course, is not the end. This is to point them forward to the resurrection. And if these three, James, John, and Peter, if these could hold fast to this glimpse of the glory of God, They would be the ones who would be able to influence the other uh, uh, apostles after Jesus rose from the dead to explain to them at that moment, this is what we saw on the mountain. We couldn't tell you about it then, but here it is. So the question today is, do you know this well-rounded Jesus, the glorious Son of God, as well as teacher, wonder worker, defender of the weak, friend? Do you know him as teacher and also redeemer, as one who unites us in a living relationship with God, but also teaches you how to live your life in its very fullest sense? Do you know Jesus as a friend who is also eternally God, who expands your understanding of how you as God's beloved can be both sinner and one forgiven and granted access to the very throne of God? Do you know Jesus as the defender of the weak, who is described as both grace and truth, so that your involvement in causes will be motivated and informed by your faith in Christ.
This is the Jesus. This is the Messiah that God has presented to us in the scriptures. He is more than any of us realize. Father, we thank you for this amazing picture and glimpse of who you are. I pray, God, that uh, if we are tempted with over-familiarity with you, that uh, somehow loses a sense of awe and wonder at your glory, that if somehow we've been drawn to your teachings, but not to the person of who you are, what you've done on the cross to open up this life for you, with you, I pray that this might be the day that some in this place, in this room right now, might give their life to you, might embrace this calling that you have placed over them and to them. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for this picture of your transfiguration. Guide us with it. And may these images resonate in our hearts and minds in the days to come. In Jesus' name we pray together. Amen.